episode three of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Lewis Garnham. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Lewis Garnham um, and I'm very excited to share this third episode of the podcast with you this week. My guest was Andrew Gilbert. I had a big long conversation with Andrew Gilbert. Andrew is an academic. He's worked at Monash University, La Trobe University, Victoria University. He's studied sociology extensively. He's worked um, as an ESL teacher, a disability development support officer. He's written a bunch of theses. He's done a lot of stuff. He's now working at the National Aging Research Institute and he's done a lot of research into aging and aged care. Um, so we, we spoke about that on the podcast. He's also done... Uh, he, he wrote a thesis that I find really interesting which was about something called the crisis paradigm and it's sort of about how crises are interpreted by humans and then they become a certain thing based on our interpretation of the crisis. Obviously, that's very relevant to the world right now um, with what's happening with COVID and, yeah, that whole pandemic crisis that we're in. So me and Andrew had a chance to really, like, dig into that, which I really enjoyed. Um, He's very smart and knowledgeable and he approaches everything or a lot of things from like a sociological point of view which I find really interesting um we spoke about climate change as well in regards to the crisis paradigm um and in regards to capitalism as well um and we spoke about yeah a bunch of things he also he's been working I think I mentioned that he's working now for the national Institute Aging Research Institute, the National Aging Research Institute. He um he presented evidence for the recent Royal Commission into aged care quality and safety. So that we spoke about that, um, which was really cool. At the end of this podcast, um, Andrew sort of outlined the evidence that he'd given for the Royal Commission and all the sort of solutions and options that he'd. And, and his team have come up with in terms of how people can age in the in the best way and 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 get old in the most humane and humanizing way so yeah I, I mean that's relevant to anyone that's a human so I'm sure you'll enjoy that it was um it was a really interesting chat and Andrew's a very very interesting person to talk to he's got a lovely demeanor he was also a tutor for me when I was at La Trobe University and he was you know you have good tutors and bad tutors and he was one of one of the best teachers I've ever had um so yeah I hope you enjoy this chat um I want to mention that the intro music for this podcast is done by a band called Silt they're a great band you should check them out um also, Andrew does some recommendation a recommendation at the end of this podcast, so I'll post the details for that in the description. I won't tell you now who he recommends, but you can follow them up later. All the details will be there. Um, and yeah, I'm on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and also emerging. Um, and yeah, any any First Nations people who are listening to this podcast. I would like to extend my respect to anyone and also if you're not listening to this podcast as well. Uh, yeah, I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people 
Um, I also I actually just watched a video yesterday about the Bunurong people and um, yeah, it, it was a video that I saw posted by the Bunurong Land Council and I found it really interesting just to get a bit of like history about the people that were here where I where I live in Melbourne. Um, so I might... It's 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 not related to my chat with Andrew, but I'll post the details for that video in the description of this podcast as well, because the premise of this podcast is about learning. It's about me learning. And yeah, hopefully people who listen to it will learn too. Um, that's all I need to say, I think. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Rate it and subscribe. Make sure you subscribe. You'll never want to miss an episode. Every episode is so good. That's That's what I've learned about... <laughs> about this podcast it's all great you know so sign up subscribe give it five stars i'll see you on the other side this is can i borrow your mind episode three with lewis garnham and this week's guest andrew gilbert Andrew Gilbert, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hello, how are you? How's life? Pleasure. I'm very well, all, all things considered, especially the stage four lockdown, but otherwise very well. Has it affected your life very much on a personal level? Well, of course, I think it's affected everyone's life. Just not being able to go out, see people, go to my usual mm. routine things that, that I do. And I haven't been in the office since March um, and I, I kind of thought initially that that would be good not going into the office but then you realize that you're sort of missing the routine interactions with other people seeing people in the corridor having chats definitely coffee together yeah yeah so the little things and I even think like um, obviously masks are a necessary precaution but I think like being able to smile at strangers on the street is something I took for granted. <laughs> yeah, I guess they do cover your expression a lot. Um, yeah, it makes you feel a bit distant from other definitely, people. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask you, uh, obviously you, you, you were a tutor for me at La Trobe Uni um, in sociology and I feel, mm-hmm. like, I feel like you're very well versed in that area um, and... I'm really interested to get your opinion on, I guess, how COVID will impact society, um, both both now while it's happening, but post-COVID, the, the new world that we go into. Do you have, I mean, no one knows, obviously, but do you have any theories yeah. on what things will change or what, what will happen in the wake of this? Um. Well, there's lots of levels that you can look at that, obviously. I think in the kind of the immediate personal sense, I think this inability to be close to other people, you know, that social distancing enforces, just the inability to go and meet with someone and be in the same space with them and interact with them and see how they respond to you. um, I think that's affecting people and I think that's affecting people's mental health and well-being definitely mine um Mm. you know there's a sociological theorist called randall collins and he argues that we thrive off the emotional energy we give to each other and the best way to do that is to share the same space and to communicate with each other 
in an engaged way to really focus on each other. And I think that that's missing. And I don't think that things like Zoom really compensate. Obviously, they're better than nothing. But I think there's that sort of sharing, you know, the same space, the same time, being there with each other. We're missing that. And that's definitely affecting people. And I don't know, maybe I don't know how things are going to, you know, assuming this pandemic ends, whether we're going to return to as much sort of social interaction or whether this social Mm. distancing is in some way going to be part of life from now on. I don't know that that's, that's something I worry about. I worry about that as well, but then to put that a sort of positive spin on that in terms of um, zoom, not being a adequate um, comparison, does, do you think maybe that could be a positive in that this has made us realize that really there is no, there is no, um, nothing that comes close to actual face-to-face interactions and socializing? I think absolutely. Uh, and, and I mean, I think especially in, in education, um, so I, I took on uh, uh, three students under a supervision last or a placement, I guess, last semester during the lockdown. And I'd taken on students before and this is where I work at National Aging Research Institute. And just being able to go in and sit down and, you know, talk to them for 15, 20 minutes, uh, you kind of build up a rapport and a relationship. And I think part of, you know, for a student, part of that is part of the education experience. And if Mm. they're on a placement somewhere, that's part of the experience of that placement, sort of getting the vibe of the place, you know, it's the getting, getting, getting the feel of other people and, 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 and that sort of thing. So this year I had three students and it was all through zoom. And the only person they saw was me. And I'd only met one of them face to face at all. um, When, when I first, interviewed her and I really felt bad for them in a way because I felt that they were missing out on that and and you know we spoke about education and I think the same goes for education I think there's a a strong move towards online education that's been happening for many years and there's definitely economic incentives to doing that and I guess bureaucratic incentives but I think it's not the same experience that say you or I, you and I had when we sat mm-hmm. in a tutorial room together at La Trobe University and just exchanged ideas. It's nowhere near as fluid. It's nowhere near as, I guess it's nowhere near as welcoming in that sense. So I think, I hope that this experience has sharpened people's appreciation of, of what it means to share a space and in things like, education and work we we ensure that we we sort of give that the respect it deserves that's that's what i hope yeah Mm. but who knows yeah i i I agree i definitely agree i really hope that as well what about um you've done like a lot of research into crises the idea of crises and and disasters um I would love, if possible, if, if you could explain to me the crisis paradigm. Um, I, one okay. of your papers, I think, is about the crisis paradigm and, and perhaps how that relates to the current 
crises that are occurring in the world, i.e. climate change, COVID. Yeah, how, how, how do those things fit in to the crisis paradigm and the work that you've done on crisis? So the, the idea of a, the crisis paradigm was, I guess, the, the conclusion of my PhD thesis that I came to, which is that rather than thinking of a crisis as a kind of an objective thing or an objective um, maybe event that happens in the world that we just describe it, but what we're describing is a real kind of thing that's independent from us. Rather than looking at crisis that way, a better way to see it is as a paradigm in the sense that it's a way of talking about things which... I guess makes the way we think about it act on the basis of it and, and, and um, it, it shapes the way we think about it in a sense. And so maybe I should explain paradigm. The, the, the idea of paradigm comes from uh, a book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And in that book, Kuhn argues that science is not, in, it's not the traditional idea of science where we're slowly becoming um, more knowledgeable over na about nature and, and slowly better able to control nature, but rather science moves through these paradigms where we have a kind of a theory, I guess, or really a paradigm, which is an expl explanation or, or a cluster of explanations for how things work. And then over time, you know, researchers work under this paradigm and they run experiments and observations and it works and works and works until the kind of cracks in it appear and the, and the kind of fundamental assumptions of it become apparent mm -hmm. and then it breaks down and then someone else creates the new paradigm. And so his classic example is Newtonian physics gets replaced by Einsteinian physics, um, your theory of relativity. But anyway, so that, the idea of a crisis just paradigm, quickly on that just quickly on yeah. that does that mean that the theory of relativity and einstein's physics or, or whatever that that will you know hypothetically be replaced with something else like eventually we'll go oh that's all wrong is that maybe i don't i don't know i'm not i'm not a physicist you'd have to ask mm, a, quant yeah. a, a theoretical physicist about that I, I think anything's possible you know you can't discount this is kind of Kuhn's point. You can't discount that like as the technology through which we are able to understand, observe the world um, changes. Um, it's entirely possible that, that, that um, quantum physics is, 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 you know, turns out to be this kind of archaic way of, Oh yeah, that's how we used to think, but who knows? I, I, I don't know enough about that stuff to, to sort of make that call. Um, but in terms of the crisis paradigm, and I've taken a long kind no, of detour that's good. to get to that's that. good. <laughs> the idea is that in social theory and sociology, the idea of crisis has been a paradigm through which everybody's discussed the modern world and events within the modern world. And by adopting this idea of crisis, along with it come fundamental assumptions um, and fundamental ideas about how time, history, how society functions, what happens, you know, the, the sequence of events. Um, 
And so what I sort of argue is that when people call an event a crisis, what they're doing is sort of, I guess that they're, they're, they're describing that event as a fixed thing. So like the COVID crisis, you're sort of going, well, I'm sectioning off this event from all of the other events. And I'm going to talk about that. And I'm also going to make a statement about what it means and, and what perhaps what caused it and what it's, political or moral significance is and that doing that the crisis the 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 idea of the crisis becomes a a thing that people argue about so you'll have different interpretations of the crisis and and within the paradigm you have um i guess a contest of ideas uh, of people's trying to define it in a way that uh, i guess serves their interests or serves their ideas or ideology and that contest is is a sort of a field of politics. And I and in terms of the COVID crisis, I think you're seeing that now. You're seeing totally. all sorts of people trying to explain what the significance of this is and what its implications are and what it says about the world um, and how we've been doing things before it happened. And the 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 I guess the person who or the or the or the group of people who define it most successfully and most um, um, convincingly are able to impress upon everyone else a a kind of idea of what needs to happen next and they're able to achieve uh their their objectives so that's 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 what the crisis paradigm means it's quite yeah um so then when you when you say that the 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 predominant group that's able to sort of prove what it means and what needs to happen going forward yeah it, are you talking about governments? Are you talking about just the general consensus or who? And, and, and when you talk about that, are people doing that because they have specific ideals or, um, uh, or even whether it's like profit things, whatever yeah. that they're trying to push? Is that, is that, is that who will be doing this narrative? I think, Yes, yes and yes. Um, so maybe a, a way to look at it is look at the 1930s and you had a Great Depression. And prior to, and you look at the United States, prior to the Great Depression, which is the last time there's been a major economic, like the last you know, economic crisis on this scale. Mm. Prior to that, there was a reigning kind of free market liberal ideology in the United States. Um, and that, that was... I can't. Was it? I can't remember the name of the president who preceded um, FDR. But but yeah, that that was the was it Hoover? I don't know. Anyway, that was the the reigning kind of orthodoxy. Now, when the Great Depression happened, that didn't disappear immediately. But there was a a, a process through which slowly ideas about how the government intervenes in the economy became more appealing became to came to be seen as necessary and so they implemented a a a new deal in the us and and in other parts of the world they they did similar things and so you could say and that's not just it's partly about interest profit you know obviously some businesses were resisting this some um people like that obviously it's ideological too there's there's sort of a, a, an ideological contest between people on the right 
people for free markets, people for more restricted markets, people for no market at all, you know, communists. This was going on. Um, it is in government, but then in some sense, government is also influenced by what's happening in the public sphere. The government is, um, is, is sort of responding to broader debates, but that's, that's how it sort of moves. So that, that, that crisis, the, the, the Great Depression, shifted the way we think about um, the economy and the way we sort of, the, the government intervenes in the economy, which really set the stage for, for policy for the, you know, up until the 1970s in some ways. And so yeah. that's, that's, that's an example of um, how a crisis becomes kind of a, a, a topic which, which people argue about. Um, and through that, there's massive implications for, for the future direction of, you know, politics, the economy, whatever. And I think that's going to happen in, I mean, that's happening already in COVID, but it's difficult to know what ideas are going to become, you know, most appealing, what ideas are going to be attractive. I think in the US, we're seeing definitely things like Medicare for all. Mm the left have been trying to get that to happen for years in the US. Now, I read this morning on Twitter, maybe it's Twitter's unreliable, but something like 70% of Americans now approve of Medicare for all. Wow. That's a massive shift in their yeah. sort of sentiments. Yeah, um, that's huge. Yeah. So that from, from the Great Depression up until the 1970s, those changes, and then in the 1970s, is that, did that, is that when it sort of everything started being geared more towards neoliberalism? And if so, what, yeah. what caused that? Was that a crisis that caused that um, big push or what, what happened there? I don't really understand that time. Um, well, so a, a lot of things happened in the 70s. There was, the, there, there was a, a, an economic kind of downturn, not, a, not the sort of same type of downturn that we're sort of experiencing now, but a, a, a stagnation of the economy. There was growing unemployment and there was a oil crisis. I think um, I, I can't remember the details of uh, how that was triggered, but there was an oil shock that the, the, the value of, of oil um, shifted in some way that changed the idea about how the government should interact with, with, with the economy and allowed a space where more free market ideas became more popular. And so economists like Milton Friedman and mm. so on um, became they more they came out of the crisis paradigm of that time. Well, they'd been active, like Milton Friedman, he'd been active for many years before that. He, you know, I argued against Keynesian economics for a long time, but now his ideas sort of had their time because the the reigning Keynesian paradigm didn't seem to work at that moment um, mm -hmm. because there was an, another economic downturn and so there's this and this is also shift this is also supported by by business by private interests um, and so you have the Thatcher government you have the Reagan government also the Labor Party in Australia in a lot of sense come to power um, and shift towards a much more market driven mindset where the goal of the government isn't to give everybody a job um, and, and, and therefore stimulate demand in the economy that way. The goal of the government is to let businesses do what they do 
and sort of fiddle with interest rates and things like that. So that's, that's the, that, that was a, another shift um, coming out of a crisis moment. I think it's important um, to mention the Labor Party in Australia because um, that was well before my lifetime. But I, like, I feel like in my life I, I sometimes have um, arguments and discussions about the Labor Party in Australia. And I, mm. I don't know, I feel like there's maybe not that much of an understanding that they were a big part of that neoliberal movement. So I think it's important to remember that they, cause that, that sounds like, like privatizing everything and, and stuff like this sounds like more something that the liberal party would be a part of, but yeah. that wasn't the case. It, it was the labor party during that time. Is that right? It, it, it is, but it's always a really, with these things, it's really complicated. Um, on the one hand, the, the, the Labor Party introduced Medicare, for example. Mm, um, right. you, and, and you can't really underestimate how important that sort of universal Absolutely. Of, yeah. of, of primary health is. But okay, well, well done. Hand, well done for that, the Labor Party. That is yeah. great. That is great. Yeah. But then on the other hand, they in, like intentionally tried to, you know, um, rein in the the, the union movement, um, uh, they, they got them to sign an accord with, um, with, with sort of the business council, um, which was an agreement at about, about how, how um, industrial relations would be done and how wages would be set. Um, and so that's very much a, a kind of neoliberal move in a way. Um, and, and other things like, like, I think it was the Labor Party who eventually introduced hex for example mm. um uh age care reform i mean they haven't that they've they've marketized that they've they've passed policies that have marketized that so it's 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 complicated sometimes the the alp has been a part of this but you know other things they've introduced haven't been um and i'd say it depends a lot on what the political issues of the time are like even the liberal party we we have the liberal party going from you know completely committed to a budget surplus you know reining in unemployment yeah. um, unemployment benefits and, and but the, there's the moment covid hits they have to give up on all of that and, yep. and they introduce these new entitlements and things like that now perhaps they're not going to stay but you know events force them totally. to, to react. Yeah. Totally, totally. Well, hopefully, I mean, some of that sounds positive in terms of what COVID could do to the world. I mean, like if mm. maybe, maybe neoliberalism has been like the big thing for a long time, but then like the GFC plus this now, like maybe um, more money will get put into the public sphere coming yeah. out of this. Hopefully. I think it has to. I mean, I think if, if the economy is retracting by, I don't know how, how much it is here, but I saw s some figures yesterday in the UK. It's it's retracted by twenty percent. Yeah. There's there's no alternative. They have to do they have to do something to rebuild that. They have. To, mm. I think the only solution to that is 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 get people working somehow, and the government has to take a lead role in doing that in one way or another. And that's a big that's that's going to be a big shift. 
Yeah. Maybe that won't happen. I don't know. Maybe they'll just let people <laughs> well, then, live on in unemployment. Fuck, we'll go into Armageddon in yeah. 15, and there's 20 all this, years. There's all this talk about a UBI and, and you know, that's another option. Um, just give yeah. people money, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd love a UBI. <laughs> that'd be, so I reckon I. that'd be a great thing. <laughs> um, it, it would be good. It, it's particularly good for, I think, creative people because it's sort of, absolutely. It, it really takes the pressure off them to, to um, you know, do some, some menial job um, and, and allows absolutely. them to find a space to express themselves. So I think in, in that sense, a UBI is very, very productive. Well, interestingly, like um, having spoken to a lot of my comedian friends and stuff, like a lot of people who uh, do comedy um, work part-time jobs or, or whatever, or casual jobs. Like I, I do that and I just, I work sort of pretty infrequent hours in my day job. And then I have time to be creative and stuff. But then when we got forced into lockdown the first time and now this time as well, it's like, you know, I don't want to be um, uh, sort of, I don't want to be disrespectful to people who are having really hard lives at the moment. But for me, it has been great in that, you know, I'm getting a job seeker payment of $1,100 a fortnight. That's enough for me to live frugally. And I can just write and be creative all the time. I can't perform stand up, but I can just, and now the idea of going back to my casual job, while I like my casual job and my day job, it'd be fun. But the idea of still being able to find time to write and be creative, like I can't even imagine that. It's like, it, it seems impossible. Yeah. And, I think it'd be a great thing for the arts if there was a UBI and people could just focus on being creative. Yeah, I do too. I, I think I, because let's face it, the arts, the way they're funded these days, they're not that well rewarded. Yeah. Um, and uh, that would be one way to do it. Um, and that's, I find that interesting. I think a lot of academics have not, not myself, but other academics have been in your position too. They've kind of been, weighted down by the, you know, the requirements of teaching and doing all this stuff. Um, and, and actually the, the lockdowns liberated them in a sense, they can just, I mean, maybe they're still teaching online, but they can spend a lot more time writing and totally. doing that sort of stuff. And so totally. they become more productive. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully coming out of this time, I hope there's a bit of a, um, I guess a, a revolution in a sense that people are like, we want, to have the space to be creative and the time and work better hours. I, 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 I'd like to see something like that. Yeah. And it comes back to a question like we've got to ask ourselves, what do we value in our mm. society? And if we value the, what people in the arts do, if we think that's important and worthwhile um, and not something that, you know, has to be immediately profitable because it takes a lot of time and work and energy for someone who's creative to get to that point. It's not, it's exactly. not a, a, a miracle thing. But that's um, the problem, isn't it? Because people, because we're geared and society is geared in a way to, you know, it's not real work. If it's, if it's just, if you're just writing a book that's going to come out in four years, it's not, it's not putting money into the economy right now. So therefore it's not work. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, when the book comes out and everyone reads it, then it was work. <laughs> exactly. Right? When yeah. everyone loves it, oh, well, that was great work. But yeah. the process getting up to there is completely, 
um, not not valued. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's and and it's, all the all the all the plans that don't work out, like the one the things that you know you you try to do, but they're failures. And so mm-hmm. you, oh, okay, all of that that process. It's it's work. It's yeah, part of the end totally. product. It's not valued. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's a tricky one. I want to know. Um, you did a a like an academic book review of a book called Capitalism and Climate Change. Do you remember doing that? It might have been a while. Yeah, ago. that was about six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to. I would really love to ask you about that book, what that book was about, um, and and your own opinions on the link between capitalism and climate change. I feel like it's very relevant with the bushfires that happened earlier this year. Um, Do you think those things are intrinsically linked? Do you think that you can solve the climate problem while still living in a capitalist system? Um, Where do you stand on all of that? Um, Well, in terms of whether it's intrinsically linked, I I think it's inarguable. I mean, capitalist development has if you look at it historically has been key to industrialization, the use of fossil fuels, that sort of thing. It's not to say human activity hasn't changed the climate in the past, you know, through cutting down trees and that sort of thing it has, but the current, I I think that the emissions is, is definitely linked to capitalist development and capitalist, uh, you know, for want of a better word, capitalist progress, you know, that, that, that's, that's part of, what's happening. Um, the question of whether we can resolve it um, within capitalist relations, I, this is something I'm, I've been thinking about for years. And I, I, the thing I really, really struggle with is what, what do we mean by a post-capitalist society? Like, what do we mean by, by that? Um, and how can we think about that in a way that isn't just some utopian, I guess, mm-hmm. dream or, or based on some assumption that capitalism is this stage of history and it'll end and then there'll be another stage. I think that idea's got major problems because it underestimates... Um, well, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a storybook view of the world. I, I, I think that... I think this is a really difficult question to ask. I'm not super confident that we can resolve the climate change issue within capitalist relations. Like from the basis of the more and more the world, I guess, um, industrializes, you know, the more things out there, the more cars there are, the more smartphones, you know, lighting, TV sets, the more people expect to be able to use energy as part of their um, day-to-day life and the, the more people see that as a, as a need. And I don't really disagree with that. Like, I think that you need to use energy. Now, maybe there are ways to do that in a sustainable way. There's certainly a suggestion that there is. Um, but are the sustainable energy options, are they... Um, up to the task of completely transferring us away from fossil fuel. I don't. I don't know. I. But yeah. I think the big, the big, the big question is: is 
things like, and that book is interesting because that book talks about things like the Paris Accord and all that sort of stuff and the government setting kind of climate targets. And from memory, I haven't read that book in a long time, but from memory that the author sort of comes to the point of arguing that ultimately you're talking about a form of life. You're talking about a, a form of life based on consumption where quality of life is linked up with fossil fuel emissions and ask and expecting people to give up on that is really, really difficult. It's really like expecting people not to be able to take a trip to Europe yeah. for a holiday because yeah. of the emissions is really, it's going to be a really hard ask to get people to that level of sort of, of willingness, you know, well, um, maybe, maybe their house will have to be flooded before they come to that. Like that more and more yeah. I'm starting to think that it, it, it only happens when your life is directly affected or like with all, not just climate change, but with all these sort of big things, I don't know. I, I feel like um, you sort of need to be directly impacted by something to change your worldview once you reach a certain age. Would you agree with that? I think that, I think like say a bushfire rages through your property or your house floods at that point. Yeah. Some, not everyone, but some people would say, Oh, this is fucked. Like, like yeah. we've got to do something about this. And then they start thinking about all of their decisions in terms of, you know, driving, taking flights and that sort of thing. Yeah. But also who they vote for um, the kind of policies, the government, is enacting, you know, that sort of thing. They, they may take that seriously, but they may, not necessarily, like they may yeah. say with the bushfires, well, the Greens have campaigned to, to let the forest overgrow with undergrowth and it's their fault. Like it, it doesn't, exactly. it's not inevitable. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's always going to be competing. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll move on in a second, but I'm just really interested in this because, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but, I like I'm quite young so I feel yeah. quite um worried <laughs> about the climate and quite pessimistic and um just like I, d I don't know if I'll be able to have kids um and feel okay about it like I I sort of when I was younger I thought that it was a really big problem but that it was like maybe three generations four generations down the track but now I'm starting to think like it'll be my kids that um are in a really fucked situation and i'd just like to know your opinion this is massive question and mm. you don't you don't i'm sure no one has no one has a proper answer for this question but what do you see happening do you see us <laughs> humanity figuring this out in the future or do you see us dying out because of this <laughs> <laughs> i know i don't want to be too negative but I, it is on my mind a lot and I'd, I'd like yeah. to know your opinion. <laughs> I don't think we're going to die out. I mean, eventually humanity is probably going to die out in the sense that, you know, the, the star's going to run out of energy, mm -hmm. but <laughs> the sun, yeah. and, 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 but, but that's, that's billions of years away probably. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we're going to die out. I, I think, I mean, what I'm, I don't really know what's going to happen, but what I'm really concerned about is that any effects of climate change are going to be very unequally distributed. They're going to, like, so in Australia, we're, I mean, we're, we're really, we're a small population on a huge bit of land. We're one of the highest, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the highest, the most affluent countries in the world. We've got, 
lots of money, lots of resources, a fairly functional political system and, 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 and you know, economy and, and media. I think if things get like, if, if, if there's the sea levels rising to the point where, you know, houses are going under and there's bushfires and things like that, I think in Australia, they'll do things about it that will mm. ensure the Australian public aren't, you know, seriously harmed by it. And, and you know, it, it's going to affect life profoundly, but it's not going to be everyone dying out. But there's parts of the world where they just don't have the resources, mm. the infrastructure, the institutions to do that. And there's going to be, you know, massive shortages of water and, 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 and food and things like that. And that's the, the thing that really concerns me. And there'll be, and, and you know, I, I remember in first year anthropology, I did this in 2001, I think. And the lecturer said the big thing in the 21st century is going to be water. There's going to be massive wars fought over water, um, partly because of climate change, but partly because governments just dam rivers and, 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 and take the water. And then the, the next Jesus. country down on the river, you know, they have less water or it's polluted or whatever. And so these wow. things, I think, are potentially going to lead to conflicts um, and massive issues. And I think in places like Australia, we'll just, you know, pull up the ladder. Um, yeah. You can't come here. Um, yeah. and, and that's going to be the attitude. Uh, that's, that's sort of what I'm worried about. Totally. And then, okay, alongside that, do you then see... Because I, I think that's, yeah, I think, that, I think I agree with all of that. But then I also see, yeah, pull up the ladder, you can't come here and maybe more nationalism in Australia. Um, yeah. Sort of like what COVID has done in a way as well. Um, I think COVID will make yeah. everywhere more nationalistic and I think climate change will do the same thing. And, then, and also, same with COVID and climate change, I think maybe authoritarianism will be increased do you see that happening? Well, I think, yeah, I, I, I'd say it's something else. <laughs> this is really dark conversation. <laughs> uh, I, hey, it's I, a dark I, world, Andrew. It's it a dark is, world yeah. and you, you can't avoid it. <laughs> um, I think authoritarianism, authoritarianism is already increasing. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's uh, you know, when you have the United States president who just today said he's trying to, um, uh, he's, he's not going to fund the, uh, the US Postal Service, what it needs to survive <laughs> this pandemic, because he knows that if he does, then they'll be able to um, um, run the mail, mail out ballots and that, and that he knows oh that if they do God. that, the Republican Party's at, at a disadvantage because the more people vote, the trend is in the US, the more people vote, the more the Democrats um, votes the, the more votes the Democrats get. I think that the, the fact that there's shit. a US president saying openly, "Yeah, I'm 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 using my uh, uh, you know budget <laughs> budgetary powers to influence the election," and people are complaining about that, but no one's stopping him. I think already, <laughs> I think already we're in a um, in a in a in a situation where authoritarianism is not in Australia. I don't actually. <laughs> 
I don't think Daniel Andrews is being authoritarian <laughs> by making us wear masks. But do you see, obviously, like with that happening in America, do you see that happening in Australia in the, in the future, in the near future? Or do you think that we would always have pushback to that sort of stuff? I don't know. I, I, I don't think Australia's really, it doesn't, it's, it's not at that kind of level that the U S is in terms of there's this massive polarization, um, between, I guess the Trump Trumpers and, uh, maybe liberals or the left or, you know, various, sorry, various other people. Um, to the point where it's become a zero sum game. I mean, I mean, to the point where the, 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 the Trumpers are, are willing to uh, violate the constitution, which, you know, Republicans have always insisted they were the most, you know, vehement at defending. There's a situation now where they're willing to um, compromise on those things um, in order to keep the Democrats out, you know, mm. um, I, I don't see that in Australia at the moment. I don't think the Liberal Party is like that. Like honestly, no. I, the Liberal Party is a lot of things, but it's not. They're not like that. Um, yeah. And and neither is the Labor Party. Yeah. Australia's got a very sedate political culture, mm. like a very sedate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. Like in the future, you know, the effect of a economic crisis can really change the way. Um, you know, things happen. Um, but these people like Pauline Hanson, I mean, she has a appeal in the, in the Australian public, but not much. Not no, really. no. Yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, if, if you think of her as like the equivalent to Trump, it's a pretty massive yeah. gap in popularity. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. And most Australians think Trump's an idiot. Like, yeah, most of them, yeah. they've got no respect for yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, I, we've gone massively off course and I really need to talk to you about aged care. Um, okay. Yeah, because I think this, this is interesting and obviously, um, yeah, you've been, working, uh, you've been working on the Royal Commission into aged care. Um, yeah. Can you maybe just explain to me what your role's been in that? Uh, so they um, commissioned us to do a, I guess you'd call it a review on integrated models of, uh, care, health, care, and housing. And, and so the idea is what, what we mean by that integrated models of care is, is that there's a lot of dysfunction in the healthcare system and the, and the sort of aged care system when different professionals or different services don't communicate and don't work together. And then you get these issues like, you know, say someone in the hospital sees a problem, but they say that's not our concern that's someone else's problem um or there's a, a, a gp running a test and the hospital runs the same test and the person the older person who's being tested is, is just completely frustrated by all these tests or they're trying to figure out the older person is trying to figure out what they're entitled to um in terms of government benefits or government programs and no one's able to give them a clear answer because there's all these different services doing different things. And so integrated care is kind of the idea that you get past that by having usually someone who's sort of looking out for them, a nurse or a social worker who helps them manage what you'd call a case manager who helps them manage all of these 
various stresses and also is communicating and facilitating communication between um, other professionals, you know, so people in, you know, specialists, doctors, if they need um, transportation, if they need an aged care, um, home care provider, you have someone who's managing the communication between all these people and ensuring it all works together. And so we were looking at that and, and whether if we did that, that that would allow people to, you know, if they're old, if they're developing age-related illnesses like frailty or dementia, whether doing that would allow them to live at home longer, would mm-hmm. improve their experience of care. Like It, it sounds like it would it. to me. Can you, can you shed any light on whether, from what you looked at, whether it would be, a sort of a better option it sounds good yeah, to me. i think it, it is i mean if you look at the there's numerous case studies done on this where they've done these things they've done internationally they've done this stuff a lot like in in canada they've done um they've had had things like this for decades you know and by and large the people who've sort of participated in them and i mean both the the kind of clients and the professionals think it's a really progressive thing um it's not a miracle cure it doesn't mean nobody has to go to a aged care home anymore so people still need to do that but it really does um improve people's experience of care and and, and uh, you know helps people live at home longer just feel more comfortable with with the situation they're in i guess um, totally it's like you've got someone watching your back yeah you've got a designated person looking out for you and you've got someone if something comes up or your your health is changing you know who to talk to yeah you know that person is going to be there for you and advocate for you and not just shift it and go i can't do that like and that's that's the sort of that's the sort of but in the and the, the problem isn't the problem is is that we've got these very complicated health and care systems where there isn't really people who are able to do that. I mean, there are professionals who try to do that anyway, just out of a kind of a, a feeling of, of, of concern for the, for the clients. But yeah. they're not well-resourced and well-supported. Exactly. In doing that they're probably overworked and tired yeah. all the time. <laughs> and all the time they spend on something, they have to account for in some way in the budget. And, and people are asking, you know, oh, where did that, those hours come from? So all of these things... Um, create a more fragmented system and and so an integrated I guess an integrated system of care would be a way of managing that so we were looking at that and we're also looking at housing Um, one of the big issues in Australia is that fewer and fewer of us own our own homes Um, I know I don't own my own home I assume you don't either no Um, I don't (laughs) and I don't think I ever will Andrew (laughs) I have no idea whether I will or not. But uh, as we grow older, this becomes an issue. If you're renting, you know, the house you're in might not be suitable to you, you know, if you've got a a physical disability or something. The the, The landlord might not want you to change things, you know, put rails in and that sort of thing or... Mm. um, But then finding another rental property can be really difficult especially if you're someone on a low income um and all of that so one of the things we looked at was the 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 government probably needs to 
really step in and, and, and help out there. And also if they become more active in creating housing options for older people, particularly low income older people who are sort of not able to live fully independently, but not really needing Mm. residential aged care in that between space, which is a huge space. If they're doing that, then, then, um, maybe maybe fewer people would need to go into residential aged care which by and large people don't want to do you know yeah and then that's better for resources as well and and um, yeah it is yeah yeah Yeah, that makes a lot of sense it's also better for the person mainly like definitely definitely and then also if you're a lower income person and you're yeah looking for somewhere to live i assume like a lot of people have to look 50 minutes from the CBD or an hour and 10 minutes, which might mean they're a lot further away from their, their son or their daughter or someone from the family who can give them that care. Like I know my grandparents lived so far from Melbourne and their kids would take turns going and and caring for them and stuff like this, but it was hard because they lived so far away. Um, Yeah. There's a, there's a concept in, 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 aging research called aging in place. And it describes exactly what you've just summarized the idea that you live in a place where you have those connections. They might be with family. They might be with, you know, your neighbors or, you know, the local shops or whatever it is. Um, Your doctor, that sort of thing. Aging in place is being able to live in a place where those are available to you. There you you go. Yeah. Into, some retirement village on the fringes of Melbourne, mm. um, you lose a lot of those, not all of them, but you lose a lot of those connections. You lose, I, definitely lose the convenience of them. The convenience. And then also, isn't it a bit depressing not having those? It's all, almost like what we're living in now in this lockdown. It's like you're isolated from just things in your community. And, and sort of as we were talking about, about this, at the start about humans needing that social interaction I feel like when you're getting old, you'd need it more than ever, don't you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's social isolation is a massive issue with, with older people. Even, you know, the fact, the fact that when you, when you work, when you're doing your working life, you, you might not even like your job, but, but that going to work, that routine facilitates interactions with, you know, your work colleagues, that sort of thing, yeah. you know, whatever you're doing. When you leave that, then um, there can be a lot of isolation just from leaving that kind of world of work. Um, and then on top of that, if you have health issues that prevent you being able to go out and, and do the things you used to do, then again, that can also be isolating. Um, and particularly people who are sort of single or whatever. Um, yeah, there's like isolation is a, it's a really big issue. Um, and that's why you have things like men's sheds and yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm a big believer in those, those sort of, um, those sort of projects. Yeah, I agree. I think they're so important. That is a thing that scares me about like life and getting older is the idea of being alone. Once you reach that older stage of your life, I think it'd be, yeah, it'd be, it'd be scary as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we suggested in our report and one of the things the Royal Commission is actually discussing today um, is 
co-housing and and what that means is that wow you have older older people coming together and collectively maybe with input from some sort of housing designer or developer or someone who can do the architecture design the kind of environment they want to live in as a collective so you might have for example you might have 25 units and in, in, on a property and in the middle of it, you have a communal space where people can get, get together. Maybe they have meals every now and again, you know, games, whatever. And then the older people living in that community are part of the management. You know, they, they just, you know, they decide who, who gets Ooh. to live there, but they also decide how to, you know, what the activities are. It's like how, their yeah. community. Yeah. And so we, we sort of said in our report that, maybe the government should consider sponsoring that sort of stuff. Um, and, and because obviously it facilitates friendships within the community, but also being involved in managing a community keeps people kind of active, engaged, doing stuff um, that's, you know, important for them. Like Definitely. it's part of their, um, it's, it's how they, how they, how they live their life. So, so we, you know, that's one of the suggestions we put forward, um, in, in our report. That's a great suggestion. Do you think there's any chance of that being supported by the government? Um, I don't know about the government. I, I think the Royal Commission are really serious about it. I think they see Ooh. it as a, I mean, I'd have to see what is said today, today. and then obviously in their, um, final report they haven't actually disclosed what their recommendations are but reading the kind of tea leaves as it were it looks yeah. like that they're very interested in this idea and ah, i was certainly good. excited when 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 they saw that in the report so so i think i think those are the sort of things you can do and if you do these if you create these communities not in the sort of outskirts of melbourne if you create them in places which are um you know, conducive to aging in place where, where people are in areas they, they know, then um, I think that could make a massive impact um, on, massive. You know, on, on how people, how old, how old are people live their lives, you know? What about, this is a bit more um, of a medicinal sort of question, but I feel like having an involvement in that community and, and the planning of it and all that stuff that you just discussed it it's i feel like that's something that could sort of um delay dementia <laughs> i don't know why i think that but i just have a feeling maybe is that possible yeah i think it's possible i mean there's there is evidence that says the more you're kind of cognitively active mm. whether it's reading playing games doing whatever you're doing the more you stay cognitively engaged then the 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 less likely you are or the later you will develop dementia um it's there is a fair bit of evidence um about that so so for example there was this famous study um in the us in the 1990s where they looked at a convent of nuns and they were looking for um you know when you develop alzheimer's you develop these specific proteins on on the brain in legions on the brain and so I mean, it's a bit difficult to measure someone while they're alive, whether they've got these proteins developing on the brain. So usually after they've died, they do an autopsy and, you know, they, they confirm that there was 
Alzheimer's, although, you know, usually the diagnosis has happened before that. But anyway, they looked at these nuns over a long period of time and they looked at, you know, how they were living and, and their engagement and they did sort of cognitive testing with them and that sort of thing. And then when they died, they did autopsies on their on their brains and they found that some of them had a lot of these sort of proteins, like proteins that suggested Alzheimer's developing on their brains. But during their life, the symptoms had been fairly minor or, or, or not there at all. And one of the questions is, is that if you're maintaining, if you're maintaining engagement, if, which nuns do, I mean, nuns are very socially engaged, you know, cognitively engaged. They're living in a community with other people who they're constantly sort of negotiating things with, working together um, to do things with. Is that what sort of stopped the um, dementia taking hold? Um, that's, that's the question. Um, and so if so, how can you do that in the wider community? Um, so I think it's a really, it's a, it's, it's, I think it's a really good question. Um, one I of think, the arguments. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, I, I think it's like that nun thing is, did you use that as evidence in your arguments for presenting this idea to the Royal Commission? Cause I think that's a great example. <laughs> I didn't use that. Um, you should have. <laughs> no, no. We talked about it more from a po- kind of a policy angle, right? but you know, I, I think uh, this is a well-known study. I'm sure people in the Royal Commission have, will have, will have, will have seen that before. Um, I, I think, yeah, I, one of the, one of the sort of possible things it shows is that there's a, a lot of interesting cognitive plasticity at the moment. And the idea that, um, and especially in children, like a, a child, when they learn things, you know, they might pick up a language in six months or a year mm-hmm. or something. And the, the, their brains are able to basically adapt very quickly by, by shifting, um, you know, I don't, I'm not a neurologist, so I'm not an expert, but they're, they're sort of neural pathways and things like that. They're able to adapt very quickly. And one of the questions has been, do we keep doing that when we get older? Or, or, or are we, once we're older, are we then hardwired and any kind of diminishment in our cognition, that's it? Well, more and more, the evidence is suggesting that no, we do continue to um, adapt cognitively. Our brains do continue to adapt at an old age, not at the same level and rate that someone who's younger would, but it, it does still happen. And so that could potentially be uh, a way to reduce the symptoms of dementia or, or, or sort of delay. Yeah, yeah, totally. And living in those communities that you discussed where the... Um constantly thinking about how the community should run and what should happen would surely be like, that's like a holistic way to keep your brain active. Cause it's sort of a constant thing. It's constant engagement in your own life and thinking. Yeah. I, and I love teaching it. each other things, you know, like maybe mm. people going fishing together or cooking or whatever, you know, well, it should, it should be like, you know, whatever skills you've developed over your life, you know, just because you're old doesn't mean you can't learn new skills. Like it'd be cool if like everyone could hang out and, you know, I'll, I'll teach you how to play guitar. You teach me how to do pottery. And And if you're old, you've probably got a lot of skills you can teach everyone else. Yeah. 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 
yeah other people could go there and learn from older people i love it um i'm good luck with the royal commission i hope that um i hope they i hope i hope that they say this needs to happen with the co co-housing because i think that'd be great so do um, i yeah yeah uh thank you so much for coming on can you recommend to the listeners a an artist or a creative or a, anyone like that that you think people should check out anyone that people should it could be an academic whatever you want i was i was thinking about this and who i want to recommend is a youtuber called john townsend he has a youtube channel called townsend's and what he does is he looks at recipes from the the 17th and 18th 19th centuries and he makes them and he talks about what kind of you know what kind of produce they would have had available at the time what their sort of cooking technologies were um you know the seasons that sort of thing um the cooking implements and he shows and and they're also their their taste you know the, the taste that that people had in in you know 300 years ago and so he cooks these dishes and takes you through this sort of social history and i think it's a wonderful uh, YouTube channel. And the reason why I want to recommend it is because during this pandemic, um, I've used YouTube, I guess, to escape from the world quite a lot. Me too. And I think this guy, because he's got such a positive outlook, uh, uh, such a welcoming kind of um, uh, demeanor, and also um, his, his, um, his YouTube clips are really informative. I think that's been a, a great, a great kind of way to distract myself from <laughs> the totally. pandemic while still like doing something I think that's valuable. So John Townsend um, cooking from the 18th century, I, I'd really recommend that. And I think it also shows what, what a great thing YouTube is and what, what great things can happen on YouTube. You know, it's spaces where these kinds of people can really find a voice. I've been thinking that lately about YouTube as well in this time. Um, I, like, yeah, I've sort of depended on it for escapism and it's, it's escapism, but it's also connection with people around the world in a way, because you see yeah. a video of some Russian guy, you know, who makes you laugh and it makes you feel connected with people all around the world. Um, I think John Townsend, is that it? Is that his name? Yeah, Townsend. Yeah, John Townsend. I think that's a great recommendation, especially because this podcast is about learning and and um and me learning. So I'm going to check him out as well. That'd be great. Thank yep. you so much, Andrew. Um, can I invite you back on in in a, a few months or a year or two? I've always really enjoy chatting to you about the world. I'd really love that. I enjoy it too. I mean, I I. I I I'm really feel honored to be involved with this. Um, you know, it's a real privilege. So I'd be happy to come back. Um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're welcome and anytime. Maybe, and maybe we can have a bit more of a cheery conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll steer away from climate change and authoritarianism next time. Whether okay? we're all going to die out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, you, you can't blame me. The, this no, year, no. this year has felt very end of world-esque. I, think. I, I agree. It's been yeah. surreal. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's something that we'll hopefully look back on and think, God, that was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
hopefully not look back on go oh that's when it all started. that's when it all began yeah. <laughs> that was the beginning yeah. uh, i hope so too um okay i'll speak to you soon thank you so much for that thanks lewis cheers have a good one That was episode three of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Andrew Gilbert. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you next week for another episode. My guest next week is brilliant. He's someone that I really looked up to throughout my whole childhood and he had a massive impact on me growing up. I'm sure you'll know who he is if you've watched TV in the last 20 years. Um, So yeah, I'm really excited about sharing that chat with you. If you like this podcast, just rate it, subscribe it, fucking send me an email do all that shit i don't know tweet it tweet it repeat it i'll see you next week catch you later bye